Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Jason Brennan. He's the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, and is the author of many books, including Against Democracy and the Ethics of Voting. His newest is Why It's Okay to Want to Be Rich. Thanks for coming back on the show, Jay. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm I'm sorry that we can't do this in person. Uh, I, I've secretly infected you guys with the flu every other time, and I was planning <laughs> to give you COVID today, but you just demanded we do this virtually, thus preventing me from doing that. But oh well, we, we always got our eye on you. It's okay. <laughs> Early on in the book, you make a pretty provocative claim. You write, if you despise money and making money, the problem is usually that you don't understand what money is and what it does for us and what it takes to make it. Let's begin with what it means to despise money and making money. After all, most of us do both, right? So we can't really despise it. Yeah. I I say early on that most Americans, I think, and maybe around the world, most people are really of two minds about this. I try to push that idea that we all really do want more money. We like having money. We don't usually give it away. Uh, Even people that claim to hate money uh, and complain about it are often trying to make as much money as possible. Uh, You know, Michael Sindel will charge who complains about how money corrupts us charges $25,000 to give a talk and wants first class airfare in a four star hotel. Um, I know that for a fact, by the way, I'm not making that up. Uh, So, but at the same time, we think things like, you know, greed is horrible. It corrupts us. Money makes us bad. If we were good people, we wouldn't want it. Rich people are horrible. We find that there's this widespread anti-profit prejudice where people, if you tell someone that a company is making a profit, they naturally assume that the more profit it makes, the more harm it's doing. Whereas the less profit it makes, the more pro-social it is. That's not backed by any evidence. So I honestly think we're a bit schizophrenic or bipolar about, uh, about our attitudes towards money. We think it's the root of all evil and we also love it. You also write that money is one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind, which I mean, fire, the wheel, writing. <laughs> it's like, does money really deserve a place up there? Oh yeah. I mean, I want, it might even be to the point where it might beat the wheel or something. It's like that important. Uh, so if you're an economist, this won't sound special to you, but it's a it's a thing that people don't recognize unless they've taken enough economics. And maybe Cato-type listeners are the ones that actually understand this more than the general public. But basically, economists say that every in order to get people to cooperate with one another, you need something that gives them information about what's useful for them to do. And so as Hayek and Mises and others figured out in the 20th century, and really even before that with uh, – you know, the marginal revolution in the 1870s, money is, monetary prices are a way of conveying information about how rare something is and how valued it is to other people. It wraps, it basically signals to other people what's important for them to do, and it gives them an incentive to work on that. So it turns out like, I mean, this is, this none of this is at all original to me. I'm reporting what others say, but I'm holding a number two pencil in my hand right now. And we ask how many people went into producing this pencil? The answer is maybe like 50 million people. Something like 50 million people helped coordinate with one another to produce this pencil. The overwhelming majority of them had no idea that they were producing a pencil. And the way that they're able to work on this mass scale and cooperate on a mass scale is through monetary prices and the information contained where they're in. So if you like cooperation, which I assume you do if you're a nice person, you have to love money because it's the only mechanism we know about that allows widespread economic cooperation on that kind of scale. Without money, we would be operating on a much smaller scale. Our co- level, level of cooperation would be much, much lower. So yeah, fire, like fire and shelter and money, that's, it really is right up there with like the top five greatest inventions of all time. 
your book's title is not why it's okay to want money. It's why it's okay to want to be rich. And is there then a difference between wanting money, like obviously if I have it, I can do certain things with it, um, and wanting to be rich or filthy rich? Yeah, that's a good point. So one of the, we, I do really spend a lot of time thinking about the question of not just having some money, but being rich. And we have to ask, what does it mean to be rich too? Uh, and so one thing I try to say to people early on is uh, you – the reader of this book almost certainly are rich, you know, and that seems weird because when we think of rich, we think of Oprah Winfrey or Elon Musk or uh, Bezos or someone like that. But actually, you know, the typical American is not only in the top 1% of income earners worldwide, like in throughout history, right? Throughout most of history, almost everyone lived uh, on less on about a dollar a day in extreme poverty. And I mean, not just like pre-civilization history, but during civilized history, when we started becoming farmers and living in cities, most people lived in extreme poverty, but even by like recent standards, uh, you know, the average American is living off of maybe about four or five thousand dollars a year in the year nineteen hundred in current dollars. Where the typical American today is in the top, you know, few percent of income earners worldwide. If you're living at the poverty line in the United States, you're in the top fifteen percent of income earners. So if you have this attitude that being richer than other people is bad, well, anyone who's going to read this book, you're one of those people you should feel guilty about how much you have given how little other people have around the world. So it's not just that, but I also, I am, I'm here to defend the idea that like wanting to have a crap ton of money, that there's something reasonable about that. I basically would like everyone to be incredibly rich. I would like to live in a world in which everyone is the equivalent of a trillionaire. And I mean, a trillionaire in, in real wealth, not a trillionaire in like inflated wealth. But it's interesting because we think about our attitudes toward the rich, which you write about. And I was struck by, I was thinking about Mr. Burns uh, a lot when, and there's an episode of the Simpsons where Mr. Burns wins the lottery and they ask him like, Oh, Mr. Burns, what are you going to do with your money now? And he's like, well, throw it on the pile, I guess. And like this idea that this is, and there's another one where Mr. Burns gets up out of his bed and uh, there's a lever that says like a big canopy bed, you know, that says make bed and he just pulls it and the bed falls into the a pit and it burns. And then another new bed comes out of the wall. Like, okay, so let's imagine such people doing, maybe that's something Elon Musk would do. Um, is that something we should endorse? Like, is that a value system, that kind of destruction, that kind of like, we, you know, having so much money, you don't care about it. Like, and that kind of destruction should be something that would be something we should be endorsing. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should be endorsing that. Uh, you know, interesting. I just got an email from Porsche of Chantilly trying to get me to buy a Porsche as we're talking, but uh, I'm probably not going to do that. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. Uh, when we're not wasting stuff, we're wasting time. You know, that's something that economists always like to push that like when we're conserving things, we're always giving up something. And so that doesn't mean that I think we shouldn't conserve objects. It doesn't mean that like uh, even as someone who collects a lot of guitars, I don't do the thing where I play a guitar once throughout and I get a new guitar. But time that you spend cleaning and repairing and maintaining and washing out your recycling and waiting in line to uh, to distribute your recycling to the recycling center or something like that. Uh, Mike Munger, our, our mutual friend Mike Munger, has this wonderful story about watching some woman wait in line with her uh, car on for half an hour to hand a couple cans to the recycling center. We're wasting our own time and we're all dying. So one of the things I try to emphasize in the book is that there is a trade-off between money and time and what are like the stuff in our time. And so... For someone like Mr. Burns, you know, I mean, he's, I don't know if he's actually doing anything useful. I'm not sure if he's actually like a good entrepreneur, or good industrialist. I suspect he's not. I don't really watch The Simpsons, but my understanding is he's not like a good guy. Uh, but 
in a way, I'd love to live in a world in which like the things that we find tedious, we don't have to do because we're so wealthy that we can find a way to get rid of that. And we're all actually doing some variation of that with things like dishwashers and vacuum cleaners or hiring people to come and clean our house for us or doing other things like that. We're in a way strongly attempting to conserve on our time um, because as we get richer, what ends up happening is the monetary value of our time becomes like higher and higher. And I don't mean Mr. Burns in particular. I mean, all of us listening. Right. So I spend a lot of like, there are a lot of things where uh, like, I don't mow my own lawn anymore. Right. I pay a company to come and do it and they do it very quickly. They can like mow the entire thing much faster than I can. Uh, so it's not just, I'm simply redistributing the chore to them, but they do it faster because it makes sense for them to buy bigger and better machines to do it. And that's one of the first things I did when I got to be higher income was to stop doing that. But that means that I have freedom and time to spend with my kids or time pursuing art or time doing some other things that I, that I care about. So yeah, uh, there's a way in which, you know, Mr. Burns is an extreme and cartoon example, but there's a light beer version of that that we all should drink. But when you're doing that, you're you're taking you're having someone else mow your lawn so you can spend more time with your kids and you have the luxury of making enough money to pay for that. Aren't you to some extent exploiting those people like your wealth is an exploitation of them because if they're coming and mowing your lawn, that's time they can't be spending with their kids. They're basically giving up their available time in order for you to have more of it. Yeah. I, in a way you could say that. And there's things like that that happen the other way too. Like the way that I earn a wage is that these like posh people in New Jersey exploit me by sending their kids to come learn like policy, economics, strategy, and, and ethics at Georgetown. They could just like learn that stuff themselves. I know how they could do it. I could tell you what stuff they can read. Um, and how to learn that, but they don't. And they have me come and do all these shortcuts for them so that their kids can learn that stuff and learn how to apply it to their future careers really quickly. Uh, you know, I get paid a pittance for that, but uh, maybe not as much as the students are getting out of it. After all, they think it's worth buying. So yeah, in a way, we're all explaining one another or an alternative way of putting it is that we're not really explaining one another. Like the people that are getting paid to mow the lawn, uh, you know, they're getting paid a fairly high wage. They're getting paid more than I was getting paid to do some of the crappy jobs I had in the past. And they're using machinery and so on in order to like do it at a higher rate. They think that this is their best available opportunity or they would be doing something else. What we end up doing when we have trade on a wide scale and hiring one another on a wide scale is we specialize, we become more productive and we all get to enjoy more stuff and do more stuff. Uh, and our money gets us more. So I suspect that like, in a world in which we all agreed we're just going to mow our own lawns and we're never going to hire, we're never going to like go to a restaurant and have people cook for us. And we're never going to go to a university and have people teach us. We'll just learn it ourselves. And we're never going to hire anyone to do services for us. We definitely won't be exploiting one another, but we'll spend a lot more time doing things that we suck at and having all of us together, including those very people that we're talking about hiring would uh, have less time to spend with their families and less time for leisure. And we know this, this is not speculation because we have data on this, and I put it in the book, that in the year 1870, the America is maybe the third richest country in the world, maybe the first. It depends on which stats you look at, but it's somewhere up there, definitely top five. And not only in the richest country, in the one of the richest countries in the world at the time, but easily one of the richest countries ever in human history. And at that time, the typical person, the average person is working over 3,000 hours a year in paid labor and working almost 2,000 hours a year in unpaid labor. Now, it varies from person to person. Women might be doing a little bit more unpaid labor. Men might be doing a little bit more paid labor. Even the upper class people are working incredibly high hours. 
You fast forward to the year 2020, and what you get is the typical American who is considered to be working full-time is nevertheless working full-time only about, yeah, about 1,700 hours a year, and they're doing maybe about 1,200 hours a year uh, uh, working in their outside of for unpaid labor somewhere in their home or something, you know, cleaning up. And the result of that is things like these sorts of statistics. In the year 1955 or so, the typical stay-at-home mom spends about 10 hours a week actually phys- like interacting with her children. And now the typical working dad spends something like 20 hours a week interacting with his children. And that's so we, we know that this is actually buying us all more time. So us all, if we want to call it exploiting each other, that's like this mutual exploitation we're all doing by buying each other's services is like a really good invention and we should do more of it. But isn't the question of exploitation a little bit more nuanced than that? So if we take where the person who mows your lawn, where they came from, uh, and, and let's sort of, aside from the immigrant, immigrant question, let's just say that they went to a, a relatively poor public school compared to you because of various problems you know, in their family. And, and so their ability to learn and become more as productive has been hampered from the beginning through no fault of their own. Uh, so at that point, their brain hasn't become as sort of charged as your has for, for the use of knowledge work, but they're, you know, they can mow a lawn, like who can't do that? And so that's, that, that puts you in a way of somehow taking from this person, you know, what, what was essentially their bad lot in life and using it to make your life better. Right. So I, I'm certainly not here to say that like, there are things that are genuine exploitation. I mean, I definitely don't think the people mowing my lawn are exploited, but there are cases of people genuinely being exploited. Like the classic case in philosophy is Trevor is, uh, you know, on a, like his boat sinks in the middle of a large pond. And I come over and I say, I'm willing to save you, but only if you give me half your future income and suppose this is an enforceable contract and you agree. Now you probably benefit from me saving you than I benefit from your income. But nevertheless, it seems like I'm taking pernicious advantage of your misfortune. So there are cases where we're talking about people in desperately poor places who only get their only options are really crappy jobs. And because of the bad job market, you're able to give them a really awful uh, job that pays them like far, far lower than their actual marginal productivity. Those are the kinds of people I would feel bad about. And if you care about that, um, what do you want to do? If you actually care about exploitation and actually want to solve it, I have the solution for you. It's defended in another book called In Defense of Openness, where I explain how the way to solve this is through open borders. And if you're not in favor of open borders, you are, and you vote accordingly, you are the instrument of world exploitation. You're the bad guy. Um, but the nice thing about the first world is we have very competitive labor markets, especially in unskilled labor. You know, unskilled labor markets are not monopsonistic. So in fact, people who are unskilled laborers, generally speaking, receive very close uh, to their marginal contribution. Uh, They receive something very close to their marginal product. So they're not getting an unfair deal. We can ask about whether it would be nice if we had a system where people had more and better opportunities and so on. And I certainly support that. Um, But that's, we don't have reason to think that that kind of exploitation that might attach to someone working in a factory in Bangladesh is happening to people, generally speaking, working in the first world. But is there a degree of, if not exploitation, at least something that ought to be concerning to us in terms of how wildly different compensation is between people? So, you know, you work the same amount of hours as the person who's mowing your lawn and you make substantially more money than they do per hour of work. And it's the case that like maybe you 
your level of happiness is higher because of the wealth that you have, but you could also be, you know, there are lots of people who make less than you do, make less than I do, make less than Trevor does, who are pretty happy. They don't seem to need the extra wealth and luxuries to be happy. And and so there's something there's something wrong with just kind of the notion that whatever it is that you do, you writing philosophy books, deserves to get all of this money and let you buy all these guitars when the person who's mowing the lawn, like we're valuing that less. We've we've baked in a kind of devaluing of of people or professions. Yeah, I, and you're right. There are these complicated things here, and it's hard to give like a quick answer to all of them because there's so many pieces. But one thing I say in the book too is that if you really are concerned about that, you should stop looking at like poor people in the first world anyways. The real question, because even again, people in the first world who are considered poor, like if you're at the poverty line in the United States, you're in the top 15% of income earners worldwide. And that's adjusting for the cost of living and the fact that it's more expensive to live here. So those are not, if you're a good bleeding heart, those aren't the people your heart should bleed for. Your heart should be bleeding for uh, people living in like the undeveloped world who have very poor opportunities. So, I, you know, if you want to like donate your money to them or something, I, I definitely encourage you to do some of that. And I, but one of the things I talk about at the end of the book is exactly how strong are obligations to give. But I think the, the more important thing in, in is rather than equalizing things, it's better to make everybody better off, right? That's the more important issue. So here's a way of illustrating that, uh, GDP per capita worldwide right now, I think works out to be about $16,500 in current U S dollars. That's the highest. It's probably, maybe it's actually a little bit lower now because of COVID, but the last time I checked, it was roughly around that. And that was like the highest it had ever been. This is all adjusting for inflation. So don't like in, in using what's called purchasing price parity indexing so that, uh, where you basically like adjust the prices in every other country to be equivalent to like that of the United States. So that a dollar in the US equals a dollar in the UK equals a dollar in Uganda on this kind of measure. So what if we could equalize all possible income? Well, in a way you would think if I could just wave my magic wand and convert all production into current income, everyone would get 16,500 for everyone in almost everyone in the United States would be worse off. Almost everyone in Sweden would be worse off, but most of people in the world would be better off because most people make under that, you know, it's highly unequal worldwide, you know, 16,500 puts you in like the top, say 13 or 14% of people uh, because of just inequality. But the problem though is uh, you, you can't really equalize it even in principle because a large percentage of that income or stuff that's being produced is in the form of, money going towards restoring capital or maintaining capital or buying seed for next year's crop or, uh, you know, government expenditures and building roads and things like that. So maybe of that 16,500, maybe only like 8,000 of it is in principle, some liquid, something liquid that you could in principle distribute to all people worldwide. And that, so that's imagining I could just like, give everybody exactly the same amount of money, $8,000 a year, uh, worldwide. And then that has no effect on their productivity. It has no effect on like coordination it gives you basically, which is completely implausible. So it gives you an upper bound. What I basically say to people is I think equality is a luxury good, you know, which is why like you see like rich people working at fancy Ivy league universities complaining about it so much because they're posh and it's a luxury good. The actual issue is eliminating poverty, which requires massively increased production. I think, you know, in three or 400 years where like the, the 
even poor people, like what we consider poor people in the world are living on a Canadian standard of living, then I think we can start asking that really interesting question if we should try to make everything more equal. But I just, I think it's like not an interesting question now because what we really need is to create more production. And one thing we know is people refusing to trade with other people because they're so, people refusing to trade with anyone who's poor and only trading with other people that are rich is a really good way to make sure the poor people stay poor. You know, so I often use this example with uh, guitar stuff in class. Um, I have a bunch of American guitar products. I don't, I, I never try to buy American on principle because I don't, I don't buy that kind of stuff. Um, I don't, I'm not a nationalist at all, but it turns out that for the music industry, guitar and amplifiers, like American stuff actually tends to be the best. Um, the gap between American stuff and other stuff is lower now than it was 20 years ago, but it still tends to be the best. However, uh, you know, if I buy, um, like I have a bunch of Mesa Boogie amplifiers made in California. Those people making that, they're getting paid like fifty or sixty dollars an hour in some cases. They're they're like rich people living in Petaluma, California. At one point, I had an EVH amplifier that was at the time made in Vietnam. Um, I have at least one Korean guitar that was made in Seoul. Um, though Korea is a rich country, so Vietnam's a relatively poor country. Those people are being paid a lot less. If I said I don't want to exploit any Vietnamese people, so I'm going to refuse to buy any EVH amplifiers. Well, what happens to them? It's not like, oh, because I refuse to buy the amplifier from them, they get to like go work at Apple and make $120 an hour. It's they go do something even crappier than that. And we know from like what happened after World War II and elsewhere, the reason that Korea went from being a poor country in like say 1969 to a rich country now is because Americans were willing to buy a bunch of things like VCRs and phones and other things they didn't need. But if they just said, I'm only willing to buy from rich people, then what happens is the rich people trade with each other. They all get a little bit richer and the poor people stay poor. So this, I don't want to explain anyone worldwide is a recipe for retaining poverty. Well, aside from, I mean, when we talk about the rich people and over the last 20 years or so, I feel like since the WTO protests in Seattle, but the 1% Occupy Wall Street, you know, we see the numbers of, you know, 500 people make as much as the other 6 billion or whatever the numbers are. You see different ones. And probably in the last 10 minutes, Jeff Bezos has wealth has gone up or down by a billion dollars possibly due to fluctuations in the stock market. And at the same time, you have these people like, especially during the pandemic, I, you know, I ordered a lot from Amazon and you see more and more people, these people delivering packages at like nine 30. And like last night I saw this woman deliver a package at my door and she's like, she's about 60 years old. Like who, you know, now is driving around, trying to do this. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos is going up and down a billion dollars. Like if we just adjusted that slightly, like aside from being rich, I mean, we're talking about being not, not Jason Brennan rich, but I'm talking about Jeff Bezos. If we just adjusted that slightly and said, all right, Jeff Bezos, your wealth is going to go up and down by 500, up 500 million rather than a billion. And we're going to pay her more money. Like that seems to be something we should be promoting. Well, not her and not maybe him, but not her. I, again, I just, my, I don't have that big of a heart to bleed for like people in the first world. I'm just not capable of doing it because I'm not empathetic enough because they're just so damn rich compared to everybody else. You know, that person delivering packages is still like statistically speaking, going to be richer than like almost everyone who's ever lived over the past 200 years and almost everyone live today. Okay. So do the same thing for get that, take down Jeff Bezos money and send it to someone in Bangladesh. Yeah. That's the interesting question is like, should that kind of thing take place? Uh, and, and I deal with that in the last part of the book. Um, Cause there's this thought experiment from Peter Singer that everyone's heard about, you know, 
should, if you could save a kid from drowning and it would ruin your $500 shoes, should you do it? And almost everyone says yes. And then he's like, well, then why not take $500 right now and save a life? And everyone's like, you're right. I should. And he's like, okay, well, repeat that. Now that you agreed to give a $500, let's just do it again. Should you give another $500 away and another 500 and another? And why not just keep giving away money till you get to the point of uh, you're actually as poor as the people that you're trying to give the money to? There's something to that, though it's a bit misleading in certain respects. So one thing is we have to think about all the hidden costs. And one has to, one has to do with the moral intuitions, one has to do with the hidden costs. Let's talk about the hidden costs first. Jeff Bezos has a lot of wealth. Um, I bet he has like a really nice place to live and he probably drives really cool cars. And if he plays guitar, I bet he has even better guitars than I have. And I have nice ones. Uh, But most of his wealth is in the form of productive capital. He doesn't have a Scrooge McDuck money pit. And I guess Burns has a money pit too. He doesn't have like a giant money pit. Like his money is kept in the form of productive capital. It's the you know, in Sterling, Virginia, that's a warehouse that he mostly owns. That's where his money, that's his wealth. It's this productive stuff that's serving people like you and me. And if some of us are complaining about how much better off he's gotten during the lockdown, it's like, well, if you institute a law that says you can't, all these mom and pop stores can't stay in business and you have to buy from Amazon, of course, Amazon's going to get richer. So if you're in favor of those laws, that's your fault. Like maybe it's worth it, but you have to acknowledge that you did that. So don't blame Jeff, blame yourself, blame your Senator, blame your votes. So then we get in this issue of like, how much of that liquid capital could we in principle liquidate? I mean, so how much of this physical capital, the stuff, the airplanes, the factories, the uh, warehouses, could we liquidate? Who would buy it? And we liquidate it. How much of that could we then transfer to other people? What does that cost us in the long run? Because we always have this dilemma between investing in capital in the long term makes us all much, much richer. The reason that we in the first world are as rich as we are and can make so much money doing the kinds of things we do. I mean, let's let's be clear, like the th- people in this like virtual room right now, we basically talk for a living and we and we get paid to do that way more than almost anyone else on Earth has ever gotten paid. Right. Like that's, that's kind of weird. Why do we get to do that? Because of past investments in capital that we, d- we benefit from that we did not engage in. On the other hand, we also ourselves engage in some capital investment, which will make people in the future even richer than we are. So when we, we have this dilemma between investing in stuff that makes it so people don't need help and engaging in trade that makes it so people don't need help. The reason that the reason that Korea, as I mentioned before, is rich is because Americans and Europeans and others bought a bunch of crap they didn't need from them. And as a result, now you're, now Koreans are in the position of being the kind of people that Peter Singer might ask to give away their money rather than to be given money. Uh, or versus helping people in desperate need right now. Now, I believe in charity. I believe in effective altruism. I do give money to certain charities and people in desperate need. But there is actually a dilemma between saving someone who need, who's going to starve now versus putting people in a position to not even have to worry about starvation in the future. As for the moral stuff, uh, you know, the, the thing that's illusory about Peter Singer's thought experiment is he, as you imagine like one drowning child and you're like, yeah, I should save the kid. And then you kind of imagine moving on with your life. But the real thing that would be analogous to us would be something more like, imagine you're walking across campus or something and you see not one kid drowning in a pond, but a giant ocean and children are continuously falling into it. And when you save children from that drowning, for the most part, anyone that you save will remain saved. They won't fall back in. But no matter how many you pull out, there's always going to be more people falling in. Now ask yourself, what's your intuition about how much of your life you have to spend saving children? 
one intuition is I now have to dedicate my entire life to saving children. I'm only allowed to eat and sleep when doing so allows me to like save even more children. Another intuition is, which I think was what most people have is, you know, this is a horrible, tragic thing, but and I should save a bunch, but at a certain point I've done enough and I can say I get to move on with my life, even though it is genuinely regrettable. Singer, Singer denies that, but he doesn't really give us reason to think that that's false. And also maybe you should work to like keep, people from falling in the ocean would be better than actually saving. Yeah. And that's where the stuff about the trade-offs comes back in because uh, again, why are we in this room talking about saving people rather than being saved? It's because in the past people decided not to save people and instead made these capital investments, which makes it so now we're the savers rather than the people who need being saved. Right. That's, that's where that happened. So in the end, it's a terrible, it's a terrible dilemma. I don't want to say it's not a terrible dilemma. Like if you've put $50 in the bank account, then, and in, or you put $50 in a 403k, 403c or 401k plan or something, you are making it so in the future people don't need to be saved. And you're also choosing not to save someone who needs it right now. That's your dilemma. You face it all the time with everything you do. But it's different. It's a different dilemma than what people say, which is just, ah, oh, you're just buying crap you don't need and ignoring the fate of others. You're not. It's just some of it's invisible to us. A lot of this argument, a lot of the argument you make in the book, is based in money as having instrumental value that we we make money or want to have money because not because money itself is inherently valuable but because it allows us to attain other things whether that's food on the table or guitars or Jeff Bezos's house but it does seem like a system like ours a a heavily market oriented capitalist system and our culture often encourages us to treat money as having inherent value or at least symbolic value that that we're told you know that the way that you measure the not the monetary wealth but like the moral wealth of a person is like getting money that you know your success is through achieving that extra dollar on top of the dollars you already have that chasing wealth and that seems to be the driver for a lot of people and that seems potentially corrupt or corrupting in that it has us you know the the person who says i only want to work as a barista and be able to afford my studio flat so that i can put the rest of my time into reading poetry or something is looked down upon compared to the entrepreneur or the wall street banker um or the ceo who is just like constantly aggregating even more and more money to themselves. Like so is there is there a concern there that the giving this primacy to money makes us think money is primary? Yeah, that's a great question and I I'm I think that that attitude exists cuz I think Americans are of two minds about this, but I also think simultaneously among the rich and including like the riches in the upper middle class, uh, especially the educated upper middle class, which is, frankly is often the same people. There's not that much of a difference at this point. Uh, you also see a lot of anti-money attitudes. Like we're all in the DC area. And what we see is we're surrounded by posh, rich people who pretend not to be posh and rich, you know, like it's, it's like, we all pretend like we hate money, even though like everyone like has a lot of it. Um, which I often think has something to do with like, when you're used to having money, you sort of get this like luxury of pretending it doesn't really matter. So like one of the things I do in the book uh, in the second chapter is try to explain like all the things money does for us that are worth loving. I say, money, what's not to love? Like it buys us love. 
And I go explain the statistics behind that. Like people with more money tend to have better relationships and more stable and happier marriages. And I explain why uh, it buys us light and literacy. You know, over time, we've gotten richer. The price of light, as William Nordhaus has shown us, is vanishingly small now compared to even 100 or 200 years ago, which means we spend more time awake and reading. The price is literacy because books are cheaper. It buys us um, uh, it buys us like friendship and companionship and the ability to express ourselves. It buys us leisure and the time to spend on art and things like, you know, all this time that I can spend playing guitar that, I mean, I'm, I have played a few gigs over the past few years, but frankly, there's not a massive demand out there for people who want to hear me play guitar. And, but I get to do it anyway, because, you know, I get money to spend on it. So it's buying us all this other stuff. Now, does that mean it should be the single minded thing that we pursue? No. And I, and there are some people who do that to their detriment. There are people that are corrupted by money. There are people that, the pursuit of money makes them worse off. But you know what? I'd also say there's a lot of people who the pursuit of other things is very corrupting. Uh, I won't name names, but I can like picture people that are like hipsters living like that. I know personally that are hipsters living in like the cool part of Brooklyn who spend all their time like being, I don't really care about money. I'm just going to make art and make right theater and do all these other things. And guess what? No one wants to hear it. No one wants to see your play. Right. Does that mean that you're really above it all? You know, cause here's the thing about like the fact that someone is willing, you know, like there's this attitude among the French supposedly, and I don't know if this is actually true. I think this is a stereotype. I don't know if it's really true, but there's a stereotype of the French that, you know, they're like, Oh, Americans, they just care about their work and they want to tell you what their work is, but I want to know about what makes you, you. It's like, well, here's the thing about your work. If I, what you do for a living is a thing that people care so much about, they're willing to pay you to do it. And your hobbies are things that people care so little about. They're not willing to give up anything to have you do them. What does that tell you about the value you're creating for other people when you do these things? It tells you a little bit, at least something, right? If you're an artist and no one wants to buy your art, are you really adding value to the world? Maybe, maybe you're brilliant and no one recognizes. I think there are un, unrecognized geniuses. I think there are people that are undervalued, but that might be a sign that like, you're just a selfish person doing something that you think is fun and no one wants to buy it because it sucks and it doesn't do anything for them. Right. So if people are willing to help you, have you pay, pay you to deliver a pizza, but not pay you to make a painting that might tell you something about your paintings. So on that point, it seems crucial to your thesis that is, and also from a libertarian standpoint, that it somewhat matters how you make your money. Uh, so say, okay, well, for just say Jason Brennan, uh, you do teach at a private university, but a lot of your students are getting federal student loans, which are essentially a subsidy. So some part of your money is comes from a subsidy. Or at least I would say you could argue you, you wrote a book with Phil Magnus on, you know, how much this inflates the cost of education. Or you could take a more extreme example like Archer Daniels Midland, like the CEO of Archer Daniels Midland, which is essentially an ethanol company, I think still is, that pretty much all of his money or her money, I'm not sure that's true of this person, has, it comes from a government rule, a mandate. And there's a ton of people like that. And a lot of people complain and say, Wall Street is protected by big government. All these businesses are protected by subsidies. I'm a lawyer. I have a legal license that keeps people out of the market in an easy way. So inflating the cost order. And it seems like that might be more rich people, you know, are essentially being subsidized in some way than maybe not. But doesn't it matter? to some extent, how you're making your money in terms of wanting to be rich. So your title should be like, why it's okay to want to be rich earned fairly or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the title could really be a lot longer. And, and really, you know, even want to be rich, it's about why it's okay to want money, why it's okay to make it if you make it the right way, and why it's okay to keep a pretty high portion of it, even if it's more than you really need. 
you know, but uh, we couldn't fit all that on the, on the cover. Um, we went through a long time of like debating what the title would be. Uh, it's for, it's for a series of books on like why it's okay, where every, every book is about something that ordinary people do, but that intellectuals tend to look down upon and the books are like defending them. But I absolutely agree with you. And there is a section in the book about the business ethics of making money that basically says what you said. It's like part of whether you have your money legitimately depends upon the way that you made it. And there are a lot of rich people who made it illegitimately. There are also a lot of poor people who make money illegitimately as a result of rents. And there's also a problem here that we face that, look, we live in the environment that we live in. Um, You know, so like, uh, what's his name? There's a, uh, is it Rissa? Yeah, I think it's Matthias Rissa at Harvard, uh, who, you know, he and I don't share the same politics, but we both agree that free trade is what we should have. There shouldn't be tariffs and subsidies and so on. And free trade should be basically open between all countries. But he brings up this good point where he's like, what do you say about when we're about to, let's say we have liberalization of trade and we're eliminating certain tariffs and protectionist barriers. And then you've got like the average person who's invested their time and their skills into developing um, uh, a business or something or some sort of skill that exists only because they were reacting and doing the best they can with the corrupted environment they had, which included protectionist things. So they recognize like, you know, I'm going to grow corn, even though I might recognize that we wouldn't be buying corn in this country from me if uh, if there were no protectionism and then now we open it up, do we really want to point to that person and say that you're corrupt? You don't, you don't deserve it. You are benefiting from a rent. So there is a way in which, uh, you know, a lot of the gains that we're getting are ill gotten, but sort of not necessarily like with evil in our hearts, because we might be doing the best we can given the corrupt environment that we're in. That doesn't apply to Archer Daniels Midland. I mean, they're actively, uh, they're actively lobbying for increased trade, like increased, uh, ethanol subsidies and that kind of thing, you know, does it apply to me? Um, I try not to engage in much rent seeking as a professor. Um, and I did try to blow the whistle on a lot of the stuff that's going on that students are invisible for, but I'm, I definitely think that like my price is inflated because of the way that government meddles in education. Um, does apply to you as a person with a law degree? Yeah. I mean the, you know, American bar association does a lot to restrict trade and restrict competition. Uh, but we, so we all suffer a little bit from us. Some of us are more blameworthy than others. But even with all of that, it's not like if we eliminated all protectionism, all rents and so on, then it would be like all the people who are rich would just be like, you know, the equivalent of like low class, lower class, low income earners. Um, they would still make a premium, if not as much. Related to that, when you look at the way that Americans talk about the very rich and, and the way that they, you know, so many people sneer at how much gets made by by various wealthy people, there seems to be a disconnect in the kinds of wealthy people that we get mad at. So we talk about how much CEOs or investment bankers make and lots of people, the Occupy Wall Street people, you know, picket and camp out on Wall Street. But I just quickly looked this up. The Rock made $87 million in 2019. Patrick Mahomes signed a 10-year, $45 million a year contract. I mean, that's a lot of money. And in fact, both those guys are making a lot more money than a lot of high-paid CEOs are. But we don't tend to get – we don't camp outside of Arrowhead Stadium and you know, and declare that this is against all income inequality. So why – what's different there? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I wrote a blog post about that very point the other day, wondering about this as well. Um, it's worth noting, by the way, that the typical person who has the title CEO is really only making about three or three hundred or three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. So when people are like CEOs make millions of dollars, that's kind of like saying, you know, 
well, musicians make millions of dollars. No, most of them make nothing, but some people make a lot. And those are the ones that you know about. And I also want to add, uh, we, one time we sponsored a book workshop uh, and we had Romer, John Romer, who's a pretty left-wing guy, uh, wants to equalize all income. And a person said, oh, CEOs have captured all these rents and they're overpaid. And he said, no, no, from an economic perspective, they're actually quite underpaid. Uh, the marginal productivity of a typical CEO, we have data and research on this. Uh, there actually is really, really high. And he's like, and if you want to understand why that is, think about this at, in an intuitive fashion. Like, imagine that you're the captain of the Titanic. You know, 500 miles back, you tilt the steering. Uh, I don't even know what it's called. I don't know about ships. So whatever the hell, the helm or something, you tip that like a tiny, like, you know, a, a second to the left and uh, you don't hit an iceberg. That's kind of what it's like to be the CEO of a company. Even small decisions that you make have marginal effects that it can be in the billions of dollars. And then you as a CEO end up capturing a very small percentage of that. So like someone like me, maybe my marginal productivity might be in the few hundred thousands per year. And I capture almost all of that. Whereas a CEO of like Walmart, their, their marginal productivity is easily in the billions and they get paid maybe tens of millions. So it turns out actually CEOs are, are typically speaking underpaid given their marginal productivity. Now, Romer then says, I, I still want to equalize incomes, but it's not because I think that they're getting overpaid in terms of like the standard economic theory of wages. It's because of other stuff. Now, as far as like why we resent them and don't resent others, you know, here's some things. Celebrities tend to be attractive and we know we have all of these biases towards attractive people. You can go online and watch videos where like they run an experiment and like a, a beautiful like nubile blonde woman will like uh go up to like men and be like hey i'm trying to steal this bike will you help me and they'll be like sure you know but like if a less attractive person says that they're like what the hell are you talking about so we're biased towards beautiful people i think also because uh celebrities manipulate our emotions in various ways like you know uh trent reznor someone like sings about heartbreak and i'm going through heartbreak at the same time and i feel like he's giving a soundtrack to my life so then I kind of don't resent his money because I feel like he really did a service to me. Whereas like bankers and others, most people don't understand what they do and how they add value. You know, they're like, I don't get what they're doing. It must not be valuable. And very few people have the wherewithal to think maybe it's, I don't understand what they're doing because I just don't understand very much. So there's that kind of thing. There's like just a status thing when like everyone loves Kim Kardashian, then you're supposed to show that you're one of us by loving Kim Kardashian too. Even though she's someone who's kind of like, rich for being rich and famous for being famous. I mean, she can't sing, she can't dance. She d doesn't do like, you know, cool karate or anything, but somehow she's like, you know, a celebrity. She can't, she can't like play football like Mahomes. Uh, so I think we have all these weird little biases, which make us love celebrities and fail to resent their wealth. I mean, Bono has like $700 million. Think of, you know, you can basically cure someone for, for trachoma and thus save a blind person for about 30 bucks right? Email site savers, go to site savers right now and donate some money to them. You can cure someone to blindness. If you're going to order a pizza tonight, order, you can cure someone to blindness instead. Think of, he could personally stop trachoma. He could just decide to make it go away next year. And he doesn't every year. He doesn't. So maybe he's like the worst asshole who's ever lived. Or we just, you know, we don't feel bad because he wrote all those cool songs and they made us feel good about ourselves. And when he was younger, and even now that he's older, he was so pretty. So we don't hold it against him, you know? And I, I, one, one thing that goes along with that is, is evidence I notice is that 
the Wall Street bets people, a lot of them were motivated by this, like soak the rich. I don't care if I lose money on this. I just want to screw over these hedge fund managers. I went and I read it. I saw it online. I went to the thing. I was reading it while it was happening. And they were like, I, I know I'm going to lose $5,000, but I'm willing to do that to make these people hurt. They were ecstatic when Elon Musk and um, Mark Cuban got on their side and noticed that these are the celebrity billionaires and they're not resenting them, but they're resenting lesser billionaires who aren't celebrities. It seems like the fundamental problem that people are probably thinking now is is that Jay is just saying that money indicates more about value than than most people think it does, and that like at the end of the day, uh, Jay is very much endorsing, you know, essentially your your net worth is an indication of your quality as a human being, which sounds like. The classic Ayn Rand, you know, you know, capitalist who thinks that rich people are better than poor people, um, and I mean, so if that's, I mean, if, if that's not the message of your book, like, what would be, or maybe that is the message of your book? What would be the kind of bottom line in that? I mean, that's a great question, and I should say the message of my book is it's okay for you as a typical person to want more money and to want to be rich. It's okay for you to make money in a wide range of things that a lot of people think are shameful turn out to actually be okay. And when you make that money, yeah, you should give to people in need and I can help you do that. I can teach a whole class about how how to figure out whom to give to, but uh, you don't have to give it all away. And and if you don't give it all away, you don't have to feel shameful. But I mean, that's the bottom line. But as far as the stuff about productivity, you know, I'm not a big fan of Ayn Rand, but she got some stuff right. One of the things she got right was that her villains were usually rich people too. She was always like the ill-gotten gains, rich people that were loafers that never contributed anything versus the rich people who actually made stuff. And a lot of her heroes were people who weren't rich, but were actually productive. You know, uh, our, our mutually beloved friend, Will Wilkinson, uh, like he, he said that like the book, the fountainhead was a great anti-capitalist, uh, screed, uh, Right. In a way, he's right about that because, like, you know, we have a person who stays poor through almost the entire book because he's not willing to compromise for money. I think there's like, that's all correct. At the same time, we here, I'm going to say something that's really going to hurt people's feelings and they're going to get so mad at me. And it's absolutely right. Jeff Bezos is going to contribute more to humanity today than like any elementary school teacher is going to over her entire life or his life. But I say her because they're mostly women, right? Uh, that's true. It's, it's absolutely true. What, like if that makes you feel bad, sorry. And granted there's some luck that gets involved there. There's some, and all this other stuff, but it's just true that he is going to do more for other people today than I am going to do over the course of my life. Now he doesn't, he gets rewarded a lot more for that than I get rewarded for what I do. Now, should he, should he, uh, he doesn't, by the way, his welfare is not at all higher in proportion to like how much more he contributes to other people. William Nordhaus, uh, who won a Nobel prize in economics a few years ago, I mentioned him before talking about light. Uh, he figures out that like big entrepreneurs, they end up getting maybe 2% of the value they create. And the other 98% goes to other people, right? That's what happens. Like someone like Edison, I mean, we all hate Edison because we know Tesla was better now, but like, nevertheless, someone like Edison, he gets, he gets to be rich, but he gets about 2% of the value he creates. And the other 98% goes to the rest of us. Jeff Bezos does a lot more for people around the world than any teacher ever has. Any one of them. So stop looking down on Jeff Bezos. Like, you ungrateful assholes, what's wrong with you? Right? So when Ayn Rand's like, you're a bunch of ungrateful assholes, she's right about that. She's also an asshole too, but 
still, she was right about that complaint. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.